Hello and welcome back to The Planet Optimist. I'm David Woodford and I'm joined here by our on-call analyst Daniel Oki with your weekly dose of climate optimism. Not scorning the world of entrepreneurship and trade, but holding it aloft like a lion cub as being the innovator and the way that we will combat climate change. I couldn't have put it better myself. Uh, and don't forget to follow us and subscribe to our weekly newsletter, which precedes our podcasts on Mondays, as well as share with your friends. I promise they will be impressed with you joining the Green Movement. Absolutely. I'd be incredibly surprised at anyone in 2022 criticising you for sharing a podcast promoting being green. And if they do criticise, they're probably best avoided anyway. I banned those kind of people together with flat earthers and anti-vaxxers. We don't really have a lot of climate sceptics in the UK, do we? I have to say, I've only met one, which was at a farm show in Norfolk, and they came up to me and told me that climate change and global warming was a government conspiracy to tax us, which, considering the grants we get for electric vehicles and we've had for solar panels since 2010, I thought was quite a confused narrative. But uh, but no, you're right. Uh, I suppose we're a nation with a proud scientific heritage and a scientific industry today. Second country to roll out a COVID vaccine. And I, I kind of think that feeds through to a general trust in the scientific establishment and a general reluctance to believe and although some do, but that anything promoted by government or by big business is subterfuge and bluff. Of course, our actions as an industrialised species are fundamentally changing the planet on which we live. But the point is, there's still time uh, to change, to innovate, and that's really why we do what we do. So YouGov did a poll on the prevalence of climate change sceptics, and they've come up with their top eight countries by percentage that don't think climate change is real and that humans are responsible. So, Daniel, this week, I'm going to quiz you. Throw some countries at me. Who do you think has got the most sceptics? Okay, top eight. Top eight. I mean, I think I think it's just the way that it, is portrayed in the media you know whenever there's jokes about it or like you know you know it comes up in a comedy or whatever it's always american comedy so i'm i'm gonna say america you're 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 on the right track i mean they are second so 19 percent of the u.s population by this poll i believe that either climate changes the climate's not changing or the climate is changing but humans are not responsible 19 19. Which actually, I don't think it seems like a hugely high number. What it suggests is that 81% do. Yeah, yeah. Is that how you read it, or did you think that's still a really, really high number? I don't know if I'm surprised, which which is weird. So I guess that means I'm not surprised, but I feel surprised. So, I mean, the UK is obviously not on the list. Nope. Okay, good. <laughs> um, Go for that. <laughs> I would say, again, I would say Russia, but I don't, I have this feeling that they, they don't because, I mean, it's going back to the whole scientific thing. And I mean, you know, a lot of their political history or the political culture, especially in the sort of 20th century, was a scientific revolution and, and, and advancement. Yeah. So I'm not going to say Russia. Am I wrong on that? They are not on the list. Okay. I'm doing good. I mean, there's obviously a majority of countries that aren't on the list, so I'm doing good. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you've only got, you know, 195 odd to get through. <laughs> I'll give you a clue. Vanuatu is not on the list either. Well, I mean, that was that was the obvious next one. Um, 
Um, Saudi Arabia? Correct. Number three on the list, Saudi Arabia. So number two, the United States. Number three, Saudi Arabia. I, I don't know if you're going to get number one because it surprised me. Surprised you? Yeah. Australia? Australia's actually number eight. That no, shocked no me. Way. Yeah, wow, I did okay. not believe that Australia would be on the list. Pro- probably because I always think of them culturally being very similar to the UK. Yes, yeah. So I, I genuinely wasn't actually going to say Australia. Yeah, that shocked me. India? India are number five. Yep. 16% of Indians believe either the climate's not changing or if it is, it's not our fault. But I'll give you a clue. It's, it's an Asian country. It's a country that's spoken about quite a lot. That's like fairly influential. <sighs> They're a big country with a big population. I don't think they feature in public discourse in the UK an awful lot. I don't think they are, but they're a big country both by population and land area. Although, and this may give you a clue, they're actually made up of lots and lots and lots and lots of islands. See, geography is not my strong point. I was going to say Japan, but... Uh, Well, I mean, Japan is, but it's bigger than Japan complete guessing so um, i'm gonna i'm gonna give up on guessing number one because i'm just not gonna get it it's gonna take ages it's indonesia ah, i would never have got that i was close with it sounds like india close enough one in five 21 percent of indonesians do not believe that climate's changing or that if it is we're responsible that's staggering i mean it's only two percent more than the u.s but it's still like it's, it's over a fifth yeah, and I think when you when you put it as like percentages, obviously it normalizes it a little bit. It just seems really significant to me that like twenty percent, nineteen percent, well, sorry, twenty one percent, nineteen percent. It's a huge number, isn't it? It's a, it's a quite a scary number. I mean, fortunately, we're we're not like that in Europe. We're not like that in the UK. But actually, there are significant populations and significant numbers of people, and there will be key and influential people who can enact policies and change their business models to help the climate who seemingly don't even believe that it's an issue which is that's a terrifying that's a terrifying thought yeah so which ones did i not get i feel there was one or two that i've i'll go in ascending also you've got australia number eight 14 percent thailand 15 percent mexico 16 joint with india also on 16 um a higher proportion of mexicans um believe that the climate is changing but it's not our fault than indians there's, there's a high proportion of indians that just don't believe that it's changing egypt 18 percent, saudi 18 percent as well and actually they're pretty much on par in terms of the, the kind of mix between whether they think it's changing at all or if it's our fault u.s second as i said on 19 and indonesia on 21 percent have you got your adam smith quote this week i've been waiting eagerly have you? I d- well, I mean, you're the one that's actually read a lot of Adam Smith, or at least the first book of uh, The Wealth of Nations. Uh, but I do indeed, yeah. Um, and it's a reminder that business is the innovator, that the, the Darwinian spirit and the drive to achieve more than one's neighbour gets things done. And the quote is, I have never known much good done by those who affected to trade for the public good. You know, did government develop the smartphone? By the way, I've ended the quote now. He doesn't talk about smartphones in 1750. Uh, did government have developed the smartphone? They, but all the MRI scanner, the combustion engine, the solar panel, nuclear fission? No. 
we should look at every corner to enthuse about and to deregulate so that we can innovate. That was a good David soundbite, wasn't it? Um, although one thing that government did develop um, quite often is hyperinflation, but that's another topic. Um, conversely, uh, selfish actions, i.e. those acting in one's personal interest, invariably lead to great shared leaps for all. Uh, if you look at Tesla, Musk is remunerated comfortably by the market for investing the last 15 years. More than that, in making electric vehicles accessible. Their business model was very simple from the start, small, vo small volume, high value, uh, transitioning to medium volume, medium cost, and eventually to mass market and mass adoption. Don't forget, it's not General Motors, Ford or VW that is the most valuable auto brand in the world. It's an EV brand. It's Tesla. David, uh, do you know what their current market cap is right now? Oh, the analyst is testing me. Uh, it's got to be... I think it's just probably south of a billion. I don't, excuse me, a trillion. I don't think they're a trillion dollar company. Just so, I don't know, 900. Uh, not far off, 834 uh, billion. And well, as a percentage, you were close, but nominally you were actually 66 billion off, which is a massive number, but a good effort nonetheless. <laughs> uh, their market cap is actually comparable to the GDP of Switzerland or Taiwan and 15 times that of General Motors, the once monolith of the motoring world. Absolutely. I mean, since 2008, GM have really struggled. They went into bankruptcy and they've never kind of recovered to their pre-Great Recession days. But but it, it takes us on neatly to this week's topic. And for this week, I will be taking the driving seat because we're discussing the industry in which I work and have worked for nearly five years, and that's electric vehicles. And also because I'm the only one out of the two of us who can actually drive. We won't touch on hydrogen because, quite frankly, it deserves this episode all on its own. So, really, we're trying to talk about Bev this week. See, yeah, as you've said, I don't drive. Um, I've never driven, though I have been known to drive people up the wall occasionally. Um, so, I really don't know mechanically uh, what the difference is between a hybrid and a diesel or petrol and a pure EV or hydrogen. I mean, I can make an educated, educated guess, but I'm always a little bit baffled. Yeah, and you're not the only person. There are so many names and acronyms out there. Principally, they're different fuel sources and different drivetrains. So let's look at ICE, ICE, internal combustion engines first, because that's where we're at now and that's what we're trying to get away from. They were first patented in the late 18th century by a British bloke in a shed, like almost everything in the world, it was invented by a Brit. Uh, they were made first commercially available about 160 years ago by a Luxo Franco engineer called and he's got a great name, Etienne Lemoire, uh, and uh, predominantly spawned into two types. Uh, now, I know that there are others. Don't write in, tell us that you've got an LPG car. We're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about economics and the environment. The two that are available commercially, globally, are diesel and petrol. With me so far? I mean, I have been past a few fuel station or gas stations for our uh, international listeners. Good, you're on track. Uh, diesel slash petrol is a combustible fuel which ignites inside a cylinder, drives a piston which is connected to a crankshaft, connected via the gearbox to either a drive shaft or a diff, depending on the layout of your car, and ultimately turns the wheels. Hugely important invention and definitely top 10 engineering breakthroughs that have changed the world. They've mobilised workforces, armies, allowed us to enjoy the produce of neighbouring countries and transport ourselves quickly and cheaply. 
Uh, and this is kind of where we come to an impasse. Fuel refined from crude oil has become relatively inexpensive and is an incredible store of energy. A litre of US strength 85 Ron gasoline, unloaded petrol in the old world, is equivalent to about 9 kilowatt hours of electricity. A Volvo big SUV XC90 70 litre fuel tank has about 630 kilowatt hours of energy sat in its tank. You're effectively driving around in a very powerful, yet safe, bomb. You ever seen Nicky Lauder's crash, the 1976 Nürburgring? You ever seen that? It was in the film uh, Rush, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, exactly. So you know how incredibly destructive it can be. But efficient, and, and this is what emerging battery technology has got to contend with. Polestar 2, which we've touched upon in the past, that's our kind of go-to comparison car, that only goes up to a 78 kilowatt hour battery. So we are, are trying to achieve the same effect, you know, the ability to commute or take our kids to school or drive to meetings with a minimal amount of energy input. So for, quite frankly, I think we're doing incredibly well. Now, because it's taken tens of billions of, of dollars and pounds to develop batteries to the point at which they are commercially viable, People have made compromises along the way, uh, and that's where we kind of get to hybrid. So uh, a hybrid is an umbrella term, and there are a few types. You've got mild hybrid, which is in essence a, a conventional petrol or diesel engine with a low voltage battery and an electric motor, which uh, is typically used to either power electronic components, such as the air conditioning and the radio. Uh, at low engine speeds, they can supplement the engine with a with an electric boost during acceleration. but. And like a full hybrid, the electric motor cannot be used to power the car on its own. You know, you'll be familiar with this with a Tesla. You get an Uber, right? And you can see on the dash, you can see on the screen where the energy is going to all the four wheels. You ever seen that? Yeah, I yeah, I didn't really know what was happening. I just liked looking at the little animations. Oh, well, that, now you know what the animation means. <laughs> I can't um, wait to sit. Instead of sitting in silence with my Uber driver, I can now explain to him. You can, you can explain to him how his car works, or you can just sit in silent awe, because, you know, taxis can be awkward. So you, that, that's, a, that's a mild hybrid. A full hybrid, which is also called a plug-in hybrid, can drive on the battery power alone and operate in a more fuel-efficient zero-emission mode some of the time due to the fact it's got a more powerful battery. Um, the benefits being, obviously, lower CO2 output and cost reduction. There's a third vehicle we should add into the mix, which is called a range extender, which the company I work for produced, which is a battery electric vehicle, which we haven't come on to, I admit, uh, but which has the option of being charged by an onboard ICE, internal combustion engine. It, that's a relatively small capacity engine, which in our case produces 19 grams per kilometre of CO2 when it's engaged. The benefit of that, something like that, though, is that you can run it feasibly as a pure EV, a pure electric vehicle, for its entire life and get the CO2 and the cost savings, but you've got the flexibility of a traditional hybrid when you need it. They've only really produced very small numbers of these vehicles. The original BMW i3, Riley's VC VN5, and Top Gear's Hammerhead Eagle iThrust slash Jeff. But, you know, Daniel, these are not new ideas. We've had diesel electric trains for 70 years. The patent for the petrol electric locomotive layout was filed the same year that Titanic sunk in, tw in 1912, uh, which has been taking the easy route for so long. But where we need to get to is battery electric vehicles, BEVs. Simple tech, well, I mean, broadly speaking, I couldn't make you run in an afternoon, but you charge a battery which is connected to the motor and turns the wheels, like a scale electric car. 
And that's where you see the greatest CO2 savings and indeed running costs for individuals and businesses. As aforementioned, there is hydrogen, which we can throw into the mix, which after about 25 years now, it's starting to come into the fray. I personally don't view hydrogen and BEV as competing technologies. I think they complement each other, much like petrol and diesel does now. But it's such a huge topic, it needs its own episode. Now, from our Gallic cousins across the channel, there is a new development in the urban transport world. Um, now, someone is not really in the car space, if you'll pardon the pun. Um, and I'll appreciate it for our European listeners, you'll be thinking, God, since Brexit, these guys in the UK are miles behind. Apart from with vaccines. <laughs> true, 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 very true. Uh, but as someone outside the car world, I want to see your reaction to this car, uh, which has just come out in the UK. Because, and I'm being serious, I'm considering buying this car as a replacement for my Volvo. So I want you, and bear in mind that for listeners, Daniel doesn't know anything about cars, has never seen this car before. I want you to Google the Citroen Ami, and I want your uninhibited reaction. Okay, how am I spelling that? A A M I? A M I. No. <laughs> no. No. Isn't it wonderful? No, it's like they took a pug and made it into a car. I think it's brilliant. This thing's got a five and a half kilowatt battery, eight horsepower engine, will do WLTP, 47 miles on a single charge. It's got its own little charger tucked away in the door sill. Uh, and in some, this is crazy. In some European countries, they have a quadricycle law. So this is not technically a car. It's a quadricycle, which is kind of halfway between a quad bike and a car. But in some European countries, you can drive it from 14. I mean, that's a, in France, they do that. It sounds like the craziest law in the world, letting 14-year-olds uh, drive a car. But, but anyhow, I just think the fun thing about this car is how adorable it is. But I really want to get across to people as how accessible and usable it is. Uh, there is only one country in the world where the average daily commute exceeds the range of this car. And we've already mentioned it today because of its climate scepticism, and that's Egypt. But and again, you know, there will be lots of people in Egypt who are below the average and can drive this car and throw themselves at the AMI. But here's the thing, here's the real thing. So on a PCP lease, i.e. pay a deposit and hand the car back at the end, with a £2,500 deposit, you will pay a monthly rental on the AMI of £19.99 a month. I mean, that's... Actually, that's yeah, that's less than a phone contract. Yeah, it's like half a phone contract. Not laughing, laughing at the pug now, are you? Well, see, you say that, I, I'm, I'm still saving, <laughs> still I'm still saving twenty pounds a month because I don't have to buy drive the thing. But but people can't go around saying they can't have an electric car. It's rubbish. It, you know, it's a frankly feeble excuse for inaction. Um, and, and listen, if you're on the other side of the table, you need a big lugger. Geely have just announced the Radar RD6 and the Polestar 4. You know, I kind of love the way Polestar have totally eschewed any naming conventions. They really are the masters of minimalist marketing because they have the one, the two. I mean, can you guess what comes next? I mean, I hope it's three. I mean, I knew that economics degree would come in handy some way down the line. But you have a plethora of choice. We are there. The vast majority of people can carry out their daily commute right now in an electric car. I live in an apartment. I have a parking space 30 yards from my flat. I can't put a charger in there, but I can charge at Morrison's or I can charge outside the Weatherspoons. Early on, I went on to Nationwide Vehicle Contracts, who are a UK-based leasing company, and selected pure EV only. There are 569 different models for me to choose from. 
87 of which were under 450 pounds a month. So 520 US dollars. You know, I haven't actually kept an eye on the exchange rate for a little while. I checked today, $1.16 to the pound. That's terrible, isn't it? Actually, the lowest um, lowest value uh, conversion rate since March 2020. Wow. Wow. But if you're in the position to buy a brand new car, taking into account running costs, you know, I don't think it's the preserve of the rich. You know, they are accessible to prospective new car buyers. I mean, on a personal financial level, I question anyone who claims that they don't make financial sense for the majority. You know, we're, we're talking about plurality of people here. You know, there are always exceptions to rules, but I believe in economics that if you've allocated resources that benefit 51% of the population, I deem that success. Well, as you know, David, um, I'm a bit of an Excel nerd, a freak in the sheets, if you will, uh, spreadsheets, <laughs> that is. Uh, so I decided to do a bit of uh, back of the envelope maths uh, to work out the cheapest way for me to commute into work. So currently it costs me £1,606 to commute annually. Uh, this is assuming 250 working days and of those days I'm only in three days a week. Though it's actually going down to two days um, next month which I'm rather excited about. Um, but as we've discussed, much like both uh, David Mitchell and his character Mark Corrigan, uh, I do not know how to drive. Uh, this is honestly uh, a combination of laziness and frugality. <laughs> <laughs> laziness, frugality. Do you want me to put that on your headstone? Them's me specialties. Uh, <laughs> it is cheaper to uh, commute by public transport, uh, for me anyway, um, and by this I also mean uh, the tube. But there are other opportunity costs to consider. Uh, you know, it was raining today and I had to walk back home. Um, there are other things to consider, of course, such as the hot weather and having to walk back a little bit sweaty, which isn't nice. And the annoying thing is... Try cleaning bills. Well, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. Um, I So the other week it was raining and I took my umbrella into work and I saw it there today and I thought I should probably bring it back home. And I thought, you know what, I I really can't be bothered to carry this minor convenience with me today. So I just left it in the office and lo and behold, it, it rained. Um, oh, it yeah. obviously wouldn't have rained if I brought it though. So there we go. You have me to thank. Um, so as I said, it, uh, it costs me £1,606 uh, to commute annually. Um, I sort of use some rough estimates, but I think it gives you a good idea of the difference in costs. Uh, for an electric vehicle, I worked it out as about £4.54 pence to commute there and back uh, to the office using an electric car. Uh, so £662.26 pence annually. But lumping in all the other ongoing costs, and by this I suppose I mean I'm not including any upfront costs like actually buying the car or add-ons or whatever it is that people spend their money on cars for, those little fluffy dice. Pink, dice. Pink dice. Yeah, spinning rims, uh, hydraulics. Uh, so it works out to just under £5,000 a year, um, you know, when you consider insurance and tax or whatever. So roughly a £3,300 difference. Uh, compare this to a petrol car, which is about £10.85 to commute there and back uh, to the office. So still cheaper than the tube, albeit only by 15 pence. But with everything else added on, it works out to £6,000 uh, or a £5,400 difference roughly. And again, this is ignoring the upfront costs. I also love the fact that your 
view of car ownership is totally based on need for speed, spinning rims and hydraulics. I love that game as a kid. <laughs> really? I, absolutely. Because it's totally informed your view of the motor industry. <laughs> it really has. That's, it really has. So the, average, uh, the current average pre-tax retail price of a medium-sized electric vehicle is £28,914, uh, while a petrol car is about £6,000, uh, £16,000, sorry. Uh, as with our discussion last week on the griddle parity, uh, the electric vehicle parity is expected to be reached in 2027, when the average price of an EV equals that of a petrol car. Uh, this doesn't necessarily mean that the price is going to be falling, uh, because the price of a petrol car could just increase by so much that the EV um, eventually becomes cheaper. So I did some digging, and the value that they're expected to reach uh, parity is about £17,000, or just under. Uh, so it does appear to be that the price for a petrol car is increasing but also that the electric vehicle um, average price is decreasing uh, by 2030 which is the year that the british government will ban uh, the sale of petrol cars uh, the price of an ev will be at roughly fourteen thousand uh, pounds ubs actually expect this um to be reached by 2024 uh, so we'll have to revisit it then um it's actually quite scary that we're so close to 2024 yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, even in the time I've been in the industry, the, the pace of change has really, really ramped up. And uh, it's, I don't think it's an issue. I think it's a, such an exciting time, particularly for petrol heads or what we were previously petrol heads, but now electric heads. It's exciting. I mean, I'm a metal head, David. Sort of, yeah. Well, I quite like my you don't, metal. You don't yeah. look, if anyone goes on your Instagram, they will, they will not look at you and think, this guy is a metal head. Uh, I do have I do have a picture of me when back when I had the long hair and and the guitars and stuff. So that that is true. There's there's evidence floating out there somewhere. Yeah, uh, you know, amid the Ralph Lauren shirts and chinos and Moncrief brogues and all that. Moncrief boat, Char Charles Tirrett. Oh yeah, big up Charles Tirrett, absolutely. Well. On that Tirrett note, I think that wraps things up for this week. Uh, as thanks for listening, as always, share, subscribe, spread the good word. You know, we appreciate everyone engaging, sending us DMs, and ultimately um, taking part and being green. That's what we're here for. Absolutely. And from the Resident Oak, it's goodbye for this week. Goodbye. <laughs>